of After Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. For watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. We are continuing on through this series where I've been comparing Baptist doctrine uh, with some other traditions, theological traditions. The first two parts were on Eastern Orthodoxy, and I thought I would start with Eastern Orthodoxy. There are a lot of unanswered questions about Eastern Orthodoxy, and so I decided to bring some of those um, uh, mysteries to light, if you will, uh, or at least I I attempted to do so, and um, hopefully that was helpful. It's by no means exhaustive content. There's much more to, to talk about there. Eastern Orthodoxy has always, for me, been very difficult to uh, to understand because in the East, there's not very much emphasis put on uh, systematic or dogmatic theology, and so you do not have the well-ordered uh, catechetical and systematic theology uh, or theological presentation that you do in the West. So. It's not like the Roman Catholic Church where you can go uh, to the Vatican's website and pull up a digitized version of the catechism. And you can pretty much, uh, you know, answer all of your questions with regard to official Roman Catholic teaching there. Um, Now, you can't figure out what every single Roman Catholic has believed. Um, You know, there's a they make a distinction between church dogma and um, you know, in theology that has been um, developed by certain theologians that isn't necessarily church dogma. And so you can find out what the church dogma is, and it's very easy to do that with Roman Catholicism, not so much with the Eastern Orthodoxy. So um, my job has gotten a little bit easier um, because now we're going to talk about Roman Catholicism and the differences between uh, Roman Catholicism and uh, Baptist theology. So this is... Um, Probably going to take us uh, two parts, if not three. I didn't like the fact that the Eastern Orthodoxy part one was uh, took up 51 minutes or something like that. I, I would like to make these shorter, uh, but we'll see. I'll just kind of go uh, today and, and stop where it, it seems like a good place to stop. Um, but there are... Uh, I think in the last, in, in parts one and two of Eastern Orthodoxy, we looked at six uh, points of major difference between what Baptists believe, a Baptist like myself, a confessional particular Baptist would believe, versus what uh, Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. Um, here we're going to look at seven differences between Baptist doctrine, Baptist, bleh, Baptist doctrine and Roman Catholicism. And we're going to start with justification. Uh, but following justification, we're going to look at uh, formal ministry, uh, what you know offices look like, what offices Roman Catholicism has versus what ministerial offices uh, we Baptists uh, believe there are ordained in Scripture. Uh, we'll look at ecclesiology, uh, ecclesiological structure, hierarchy, and things of, of that nature. We'll then go from that to uh, baptism, then we'll look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, then we'll move from that to uh, the saints and Mariology. And um, 
And then after that, we'll look at scripture and tradition and the relationship uh, between those two. Um, so we those last two are, I know, probably of interest to many. Uh, and uh, we probably won't get there until part two or three if we do, uh, you know, multiple parts. And in fact, uh, parts one and two of Eastern Orthodoxy are just going to keep going. So it's part one and part two are on Eastern Orthodoxy. Then part three, part four are going to be on Roman Catholicism. So uh, hopefully the numbering doesn't get anyone confused there. So beginning with justification, this is the most fundamental question that we can ask. I mean, when we're looking at any other uh, tradition or any other teaching that claims to be uh, Christian, uh, that claims to follow Christ and present the teachings of Christ, one of the most important questions that we could ever ask, um, in addition to who or what is God, which is actually the most important question, but we don't have significant differences between ourselves and and Roman Catholicism in terms of who we confess God to be. Uh, God is one, uh, subsisting, one divine essence subsisting in three um, subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in, you know, there's, there's really no difference in terms of the doctrine of God. Even in the authors of the Reformation, uh, you can see them say things we've, you know, we've never had a difference on on the doctrine of God. What we confess God to be has been uh, the same between us. So we're not going to ask that question. That is objectively the most important question. But in terms of our experience as Christians, the next, a close second, is as sinners, we're all sinners. How can we be made right with God? In other words, what is the way to be made right with God? Because between Roman Catholicism officially and us as Baptists, we would both say that there is one way, right? Objectively, there's only one way of salvation, but we would present two distinct ways. And that means that one of us has to say that the other is, present, is presenting a false way of salvation. Uh, and that, that uh, and essentially one of us would be saying to the other, uh, you are you are preaching a false gospel that is resulting in the damnation of souls. All right, so this is a very important question. It's a very fundamental question, and so we're going to start with us with with with, with this first with justification. Um, I'm going to start with what Rome believes, then I'm going to go to what what we believe, um, and I. I didn't so much in Eastern Orthodoxy, but I'm going to interact a lot with the confession here, uh, with the Second London Confession, which I I fault myself for not doing in the in the first couple parts. But here we'll we'll get that interaction. Um, but before I but before I do that, I'll just just general synopsis of what justification refers to. Justification refers to uh, us being considered righteous before God by God, all right? Um, what accounts for that, all right? That's the question we're asking. If we are made right with God, why? Why does God consider us right with him? Or why does God consider us righteous or just? The question of justification. All right, so what does Rome believe? Um, I'm quoting directly from the Catholic Catechism on all of this. Uh, it's coming directly from uh, Vatican.va, 
There's a uh, digital copy of the catechism there. So this is official teaching of the Catholic Church. And um, uh, so hopefully, um, unless I misrepresent what is said, um, hopefully uh, there is no misrepresentation of any serious uh, practicing Catholic uh, here. I'm going to try to represent fairly and in order to do that, I've chosen to go to the Catholic Catechism. So I'm not going to be reading from individual Catholic theologians because uh, that's they they don't always represent nor present um, official church teaching, but the Catholic Catechism does. So um, I'm going to start here uh, with what Rome believes concerning justification, quoting from the Catholic Catechism or the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Part 3, Section 1. Chapter 3, Article 2, uh, <laughs> of course, the, the, the list goes on, right? Uh, but, I'm, but I'm quoting, that's the area I'm quoting from. It says, Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. And so what I want you to notice, as we this is the only place from the catechism I'm going to quote on justification. There's plenty there's plenty more than this, but this is this gets to the crux of the matter and the crux of the disagreement. I want you to notice something, and that is that in this article or sentence of the Catholic Catechism, Rome has identified justification with sanctification such that they are one and the same, or rather justification includes necessarily within itself sanctification and renewal, i.e. us being made righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that process by which we are sanctified is counted as part of our justification. And that, so in other words, in as much as we are sanctified, we are likewise justified. If we are, uh, in, 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 and to say it another way even, uh, our sanctification is that according to which we are justified, right? It is, it is a, it is, it is a self-same act, if you will. It's, it's these two things are identified together. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. In other words, if you are not renewed, if you do not have that renewal. And of course, that is perceived through fruits of obedience, then you are not justified by God. All right. What do Baptists believe? All right. What do Baptists believe? And I'm, I'm going to quote here from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1677, uh, chapter 11, paragraph 1. And it says, and that's the uh, chapter of justification. And it says, Those whom God effectually calleth. He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them. In other words, not by virtue of their renewal and uh, the, uh, the interior improvement of them by the Holy Spirit. But, it says, by pardoning their sins, forgiveness or remission of sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Now get this. Again, not because of anything going on in them, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. 
In other words, justification is understood as a free act of God whereby he declares us righteous on account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's not a righteousness we are made to have intrinsically. It's the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is credited to us in virtue of him being our federal head. I want to use an analogy. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was called Israel in virtue of them being born to who? In virtue of them being born to Jacob. They are named Israel because they are children of Israel, that is, children of Jacob. You have to remember that Jacob was the first person who was named Israel. Now, regardless of how an Israelite acted, and oftentimes they misbehaved and transgressed God's law and sinned, they were yet considered Israelites, all right? They were yet considered Israelites, and of course, provision was made for their forgiveness under the old covenant, typified and signified in sacrifice, all right? Now, when we move to the new covenant, we understand that our sacrifice for the remission of our sins is the Lord Jesus Christ, objectively so-called, and it was for them as well. Uh, but the types have changed, the administration has changed, the covenants have changed. And that means that as New Testament Christians, we understand that our sacrifice is our remission of sins. But we, the, the, not our sacrifice, I'm sorry, that the sacrifice of Christ is our remission of sins. That is where our remission of sins is couched. It's where it's located. If we did not have the sacrifice of Christ, we would not have forgiveness of sins. But we also understand that the righteousness of Christ, that is the active obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, is given to us or uh, is accounted to us in virtue of us being in Christ. Again, it wasn't necessarily the behavior of the Israelite that resulted in them being called Israelites. It was in virtue of their being included within the nation and being represented by Jacob, right? Coming in under Jacob, being born to Jacob. And so too, we are newly born in Jesus Christ. We are justified in and through Jesus Christ alone. That righteousness of Christ is named upon us, similar to how the name of Israel was named upon the Israelites in virtue of them being in Jacob. It's in virtue of us being in Christ that we have the righteousness of Christ. It's not because of what we do. It's not because of who we are. It's because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, that's not to preclude or exclude the idea of God making us righteous. He does do that. But that's the process of sanctification, and we, we carefully distinguish sanctification from justification. Whereas, if we are justified, we are going to be sanctified. It's not the case that our sanctification has—it's uh, not the case that our sanctification is our justification or that it causes our justification. We're justified not because of what goes on in us, but because of what Jesus has done and the fact that we are in him— and thus possess his righteousness. It has been counted or credited to us, right? It's not that we have been made righteous like him. It's that his righteousness has been imputed to us. All right, so it's a very key difference. We do not believe, and this isn't distinct to Baptists. This is all of Protestant orthodoxy. But along with 
with Protestant Orthodoxy, Baptists believe that we are not declared righteous in virtue of us being made righteous. We're declared righteous in virtue of the righteousness of Christ alone. And then God makes us righteous. All right. So very key, uh, very key distinction. So we'll go ahead and move from that. Uh, there's more that could be said there, but I, but I would really like to move uh, from that um, as the most important, um, probably the most important distinction that we're going to make here. That is the, that is the, that is first and number one. If we had justification in common, uh, it would be a, a much different relationship that we would have with Rome. We would understand that they're flawed in several other ways that are very troublesome, um, but there would at least be uh, the true gospel hidden in there somewhere. And in this case, there's not. Uh, this is a this is a completely different gospel. It's a completely different conception of how we are made right before God or how we are declared righteous in his sight. Um, moving now then to formal ministry, uh, and this now dealing with the, the formal offices of ministry within the church. What does Rome believe about that? And again, I'm going to quote from the Catholic Catechism, Part 1, Section 2, uh, Chapter 3, Article 9, I think that's paragraph four, and it is uh, number 880, and it says this. Again, this is formal ministry. We're moving along now from justification. Here's what Rome believes with regard to the offices in the church. It says, when Christ instituted the twelve, he constituted them in the form of a college or permanent assembly, at the head of which he placed Peter, chosen from among them. Just as by the Lord's institution, St. Peter and the rest of the apostles constitute a single apostolic college, so in like fashion, the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, and the bishops, the successors of the apostles, are related with and united to one another. So in other words, what it's saying is the Pope, along with the college of bishops, are the rulers of the entire Roman Catholic institution. Um, that is to say that there, this college of bishops is the governing structure and the governing hierarchy that sits above every local particular parish church, right? In addition to every jurisdictional church or diocese, there's a college of bishops that sits over and above all of that, sits over uh, the priests and uh, the deacons at individual local parish churches as well. So um, there's there's definitely a hierarchy within Rome. Uh, and it goes on to say in, in the same area, just uh, number 883 instead of number 880, the college or body of bishops has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, that is the Pope, Peter's successor as its head. As such, it goes on to say, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church, but this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff. So, the, the, what it's saying there is that the Pope is the one universal bishop that unifies the church as a monarch unifies a nation. And the Pope is, is essentially the, uh, uh, the cornerstone of the College of Bishops. It is required that the Pope be in place for anything else in the Roman Catholic institution to function 
aright. He is the absolute essential part of uh, Roman Catholic ecclesiology. Uh, their doctrine of the church rides or dies on the papacy. It goes on to say uh, in number 886, following in the same area, the individual bishops are the visible source and foundation of unity in their own particular churches. As such, they exercise their pastoral office over the portion of the people of God assigned to them, assisted by priests and deacons. So essentially what you have to summarize those three areas that I've just read, you have the Pope, then you have bishops, then you have priests, then you have deacons. So there are four main offices in the Roman Catholic Church, Pope, bishops, priests, deacons. All right. Now, what do Baptists believe? Uh, we'll turn now to the Baptist position. Again, reading from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, chapter 26 uh, on the church. Uh, this is Article 8, and it says, A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members, or officers and the laity. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so-called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. So bishops and elders are being used uh, interchangeably, and you could say that those two words would be used interchangeably with pastor as well. So essentially you have two offices uh, instituted in the church by Christ, and those uh, those offices are bishops and elder, or bishops and deacons, or elders and deacons, or pastors and deacons. Um, th so there are only two two offices. Now the reason we we believe that is because we believe that that's the teaching of Holy Scripture. For example, in Acts chapter twenty verse seventeen, we read from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then in places like verse 28, just a few verses later, it says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So these elders are, uh, are equated to shepherds or pastors. They are overseers or bishops. Those are all one and the same thing, given Acts chapter 20. Uh, we have instructions, precise instructions and qualifications for bishops or elders in uh, places like 2 Timothy 3. Um, and if you go to 2 Timothy 3, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 3, uh, you have qualifications for elders. And then after that, you have qualifications for deacons. Uh, in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops or the elders and deacons. So when, when uh, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, who does he address in terms of the leadership? He is addressing the elders and the deacons. And so we only recognize as the scriptural teaching really only two offices, the bishops and the deacons. Now, uh, to be fair, uh, Rome has arguments from Scripture for the papacy, or what they believe are argu legitimate arguments for the papacy, and I won't go too far into those. Um, I would touch on uh, the new Eliakim argument, and uh, there's much more to be said 
about this, uh, but basically it's a typological argument that Rome would make for the papacy, and they would say, well, if you look at Isaiah 22, verse 20, there's a prophecy there, and it says, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Now what they will say is they will say there is a reference to this passage, Isaiah 22, 20 uh, through 22 in uh, Matthew 16. So where Jesus um, commissions the apostles and promises to build his church, uh, and he references Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 18, he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then he says, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the argument is that since he's giving these keys to Peter, and Peter, it seems, in particular, which I would contest that, and uh, Protestant historically would contest that on exegetical grounds, but I'm just giving you the argument. Since he's giving these keys in particular to Peter, this is a fulfillment of the Isaiah 2220 prophecy that the new Eliakim has come and the new Eliakim who bears the keys of David on his shoulder is indeed Peter. It begins with Peter, and of course, then Peter has successors and is to carry that key. Of course, there are a lot of blank spaces in the argument. There are a lot of there are more questions that the argument raises uh, than answers, but that's their argument. Now, uh, just by uh, a quick uh, a quick uh, counter to this, um, we would say I would say that that the new Eliakim is Jesus Christ. Um, that Eliakim as a type is fulfilled in the antitype, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, the reason I would say that is because uh, while Matthew 16 uses the language of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, there is an explicit area in the text of the New Testament where the key of David is used and it's applied to Christ. Remember, Eliakim is the one, the new Eliakim is going to have the key of David placed on his shoulder. Um, and there's another place in the New Testament where it uses that same language, but applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that occurs in Revelation 3.7. In Revelation 3.7, we read, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts, and no one opens. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ talking about himself. He's, he's saying that I'm saying this. I am he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. Jesus assigns that language to himself. Now, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the new Eliakim prophecy, the antitype to Eliakim, and I believe that he is, and he is the only one who opens 
and the only one who shuts, then the Pope cannot share in that responsibility. And whatever the keys to the kingdom of heaven are, they are not the same thing as the key of David. All right, because explicitly in Revelation 3, 7, we have the key of David being applied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. But enough of that. We'll have to move on from the offices of the Roman Catholic Church. Just as a summary, Rome believes there are four official offices in their institution, Pope, bishops, priests, deacons. As Baptists, along with the other Protestants, we would say there are only two offices, and that is bishops and deacons. Now, let's move to ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, the structure of the church, the doctrine of the church, um, and uh, we know that ministerial offices have much to do with that, but um, but uh, is, is ecclesiology is more broad than just, uh, just the offices. Um, so what does Rome believe about the church? Again, quoting from the Catholic Catechism, Part 1, Section 2, Chapter 3, Article 9, Paragraph 3, Number 834, it says, particular churches are fully Catholic through their communion with one of them, the Church of Rome. So in other words, all other particular churches are Catholic in virtue of them being in union with another particular church, a chief particular church. And that chief particular church is the Church of Rome, which has its seat in the Vatican, at Vatican City. So Rome makes the Catholicity and orthodoxy of a particular church dependent on whether that particular church is in communion with the Church of Rome. If a church, if a particular, if a particular parish, Roman Catholic parish, like the one here in my town, for example, we have one of them in my town. Um, if it said tomorrow, we are breaking away from uh, the universal bishop, we're breaking away from the Church of Rome. Uh, the Church of Rome... Would I don't know what would happen in terms of the particularities and all the logistics and the financial responsibility and all of, all, and all of that, but but they would be considered a, a church that is not fully Catholic. Um, perhaps they are a church that has some Catholic doctrine, uh, but they are not fully Catholic. They are a departed brother, if you will, uh, if they break away from that central church in Rome. So the Church of Rome, in the final analysis, is the principle of universality. Again, everything seems to be taken away from Christ as the central principle of universality and placed on the institutional church. The Church of Rome is the principle of universality, and I would go even a step further and say that the papacy, which has its seat at the Church of Rome in Vatican City, in Rome, in Italy... <laughs> is the central principle of universality in the Roman Catholic Church. And so the universality of the church, the quote-unquote universal church or their conception of it, becomes entirely visible, tangible, institutional, and entirely dependent on their association with that central church in Rome. And what that does is it removes, it really does remove, the work of the Spirit, seemingly, in making the church the church. The Spirit and the Word create the church, not an alliance with a particular institution. All right, But what we have here in Rome is a, is, uh, a dependency upon 
the Church of Rome for the Catholicity and universality uh, or the participation in that universality or Catholicity of individual churches. Um, what do Baptists believe, on the other hand? What do we believe? Uh, this is paragraph one of chapter 26. It says this, The Catholic or universal church, which, with respect to the internal work of the Holy Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, there are many differences there, but in short, the universal church, according to the Second London Confession, is invisible. Its dependency is not upon uh, an earthly institution uh, or an institution uh, that is um, uh, geographically bound, uh, temporally bound, and so on. The universal church is, is invisible because it's spiritual. It's preeminently dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers, bringing them together, causing them to confess the same faith, the same Christ, thereby having the same Christ dwelling in each of them. So it's a spiritual entity, and it's united to a transcendent creator, which union, that union, transcends time and space, manifesting as it does in heaven and on earth simultaneously. What ends up happening with Rome, I think, is that the heavenly, what, they, what they're doing, what they're attempting to do, because they've made a major, I think they've confused some pretty important uh, factors and biblical data points is uh, what they're attempting to do is basically bring the heavenly Jerusalem to earth and into the present. Um, but when we read in Hebrews, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is in heaven, and we are in communion with it by the power of the Holy Spirit through the one faith by virtue of the work of Christ and so on. Um, and we are of that heavenly Jerusalem, born of it even, to use that language of Paul in Galatians. Um, but we are, uh, but that, that heavenly Jerusalem is of an heavenly nature. And as such, it transcends the institutions that we encounter in this life, institutions that are subject to change, mutability, destruction, even heresy, trials and tribulations. This heavenly Jerusalem is not subject to any of those things. And we are members of that heavenly Jerusalem. So I think what Rome tries to do is it tries to make the heavenly Jerusalem an earthly entity. Uh, and it does so to its own, its own peril. Um, as far as we go and what we believe, uh, according to our, our confession, um, there needs to be a universal church. We have to confess the universal church. Why? Because there's one body of Christ. There's not many. Why? Because there's one spouse of Christ. There's not many. Our Lord is not a polygamist. Uh, there's one bride, one body. Ephesians 4 is very clear on this. Um, so there is one church. Uh, so there must be a confession of a universal church because we're united to a universal Lord a single Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have one faith, um, and uh, uh, and so thus we have one body and one bride. Uh, 
we represent one single kingdom, uh, which is the kingdom of heaven and of our God. And so there, there must be a confession of a universal church. However, moving on to paragraph 7 of chapter 26 of the Second London Confession, we read, To each of these churches, there's your particular language of the local church, and they mean not districts, not presbyteries, um, but individual local churches. To each of these churches thus gathered, according to his mind, declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline, which he hath instituted for them to observe, with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So what's being said here is, is notwithstanding the oneness or the unity of believers in virtue of the same faith and the same Lord in heaven and on earth, which union is called the universal church oftentimes in theology, each particular church is the only material manifestation of that universal church. It's the only one, right? There's no hierarchy above that. There's no supreme church above all the smaller churches. Each particular church contains within itself everything it needs in order to be a church. And it's not subordinate to any bishopric or ecclesial hierarchy or college of bishops. The only person that it is subordinate to is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, he is the Lord uh, and Savior of his church. Furthermore, we read in chapter 26, article 4, uh, which is an uh, an article or a paragraph that uh, that rebukes the idea of a hierarchy that goes beyond what the scriptures teach, and it does so in such strong language. Uh, it says, "The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner." Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be had thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the universal church, and he's also the head of each and every individual local church. That means that every individual local church has everything it has, everything it needs in order to be a local church. It's got its Lord, who is its king and ruler, but under him it has its under shepherds, the elders, it has its deacons, it has its members, it has its ordinances and its instructions, which come from the word of God and the word of God alone. I think I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I'm already at almost 40 minutes and we've still got baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, saints and Mariology, as well as scripture and tradition to go through, which uh, all of that might end up breaking up into two parts. So here we we may have a three-parter <clears throat> with, with Roman Catholicism here. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, if there's any obscurities or anything that's confusing, please feel free to leave comments. Um, if it was helpful, give a thumbs up, consider sharing it and, um, God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your day.